Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris Fall. I'm the editor of the Toolkit, and my guest today is the director and writer of Mission Impossible Fallout, Chris McCory. Thank you, Chris, for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, you are uh, around the world right now, right? Yes. This, this, is, is, the, this is the last stop, actually. It before is? Before L.A., yes. How have, you, have you been showing it? Where have you been showing it? Uh, we started in Paris, uh-huh. London, Korea, Japan, uh, Washington, D.C., came to New York last night. Uh, we leave for Los Angeles on Wednesday morning, and then I get a vacation. And I then there's China after that. The reason I ask is, you know, I've been in a little bit of a bubble, but is the re- reaction to this movie been as ecstatic as it was here? I mean, this was like, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I, this is the best action film I've seen in quite a while. And I, well, the, the, room I, the room I saw it in, you know, we were all ready for a Mission Impossible movie. We, 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 we had expectations, <laughs> and we all, all the New York media looked around at each other. What the fuck was that? <laughs> and so well, I, thank I, you for opening up the room. Now that I know we can say fuck on the podcast. So, but yeah, I just, I just, I, I'm wondering if you are getting a. I know, I know, I know people love these movies, but this, it's, it's. I have to tell you, it's not only surreal, but the, 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 the really unexpected thing about it was we, we broke the formula. Um, Ghost Protocol had had really found we we all felt that Ghost Protocol found what Mission Impossible really is, and when I made Rogue Nation, I I I definitely made what I thought was my Mission Impossible, but I but I also respected what what Brad had found with Rogue. Um, w- when Tom asked me to do this movie, I uh, I said. You know, the, the, the fans of the franchise have come to expect a different director every time, and I want to maintain that mm-hmm. aesthetic, and that means making a very different film, um, not only in how it looks and how it feels, but also in terms of its tone and scope and scale. That's messing with the formula. That's, um, and, and, and that's, uh, that's messing with a streak. And when you subvert expectations, you do so at your peril, as we've seen. Uh, so. Uh, I was expecting on some level people to be, to, to react to it, coming in and expecting something that followed the, that, that path laid out by Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation. And when they didn't, I was, I was beyond pleasantly surprised. I was a little bit shocked. I mean, one of the things that I've always liked, I, I, this is a personal thing, the serialization of some of this stuff becomes, becomes a, a little weighty, and I've always loved Mission Impossible because it's just become this, this glove that all these great action directors can come in and make their own without, yeah. it, without being a problem. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, they work within this structure, and it, it could be a John Woo film. It could, I didn't know Andrew Sand could do it, but he could do it. You know, it's like Absolutely. You know, in a, in a Brad Bird. And, but my, 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 that, this idea, when you say you've discovered it, there's kind of two things here. One is like this decision of... There, I don't. There is sequel aspects to this, mm-hmm. and then, and you've said this before in other interviews, is this idea of being a different director yourself, which yeah. I have to assume, you know, there's also an element here is, is that you, you are a great screenwriter. That's how you came up through this business. That you've, and, and there's an element here of, you know, you're becoming this action director. You're like a completely different director in this movie, and this is like, I mean, I don't want to. Rogue Nation's great. I enjoyed it, but I mean, this is something that one does not expect from the screenwriter turned turned director into this. And, and so I'm just wondering about that balance of also f- the, the story element 
you're bringing in some SQL elements, you're doing some interesting things with Ethan character, which you kind of need to build off Rogue Nation. But then that sense of putting on a different skin as a, as yeah. a director. Yeah. Because imagine, I don't know, but I think you're talking about two very different things there, right? Very different. I mean, the, the, the screenwriting to directing disciplines are, are as different. Those two disciplines are, are so radically different from one another, and that the analogy I use is um, writing is taking everybody's work and or everybody's vision and putting it into your work. You have the studio telling you what they want, the actors are telling you, and obviously the director is telling you. And you're you're trying to accommodate all of those different desires into one coherent document. Directing is taking everybody's work and putting it into your vision. Um, so you, you, you couldn't have two more opposite disciplines. And so to make the transition from one to another is tantamount to driving down a highway throwing the car in reverse. Mm -hmm. um, then, with, with, so I, I, I learned a lot between my first and second film, especially in that there were 12 years between The Way of the Gun and Jack Reacher, seven of which I didn't get anything made. I was really struggling and was forced to confront what it was I was doing wrong. Why couldn't I get something going? Um, what did the business want from me that I wasn't giving them? Uh, and, and so I've taken a different route than most directors have. Um, I, I've, been, I've been through a farm system that most directors are not. They, you, you see it happen a lot now where somebody directs a small film that film is a runaway success. So you have a $5 million movie that makes $50 million, and somebody says, I've got a great idea. Let's give that guy $200 million, and we'll protect him. We'll put a bunch of people around him, and they'll, and they'll guide him. And then as soon as that person is put in charge of the movie, no one wants to tell the director what to do. So you have somebody that's never made one of these movies, does not understand the rules, is there to break the rules, and is there to reinvent the wheel and they lose sight of the fact that the wheel is not round. Well, I mean, that the wheel is round, and it's round for a reason, and that their wheel is not. Um, whereas I went from directing a very small movie that was remarkably unsuccessful. 12 years later, I direct, directed a, uh, a medium-sized movie. But in between that, I had done Valkyrie with Tom. Uh, I had done... Uh, I had worked on uh, Mission Impossible, uh, Ghost Protocol with Tom, and had been behind the scenes and seen how that worked. Directed Jack Reacher, which was relatively small in terms of its action, mm -hmm. but was able to get my feet wet and was able to, 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 uh, to find a comfortable working relationship with Tom. That then led to Edge of Tomorrow, which was again, I was writing and in more of a producerial writing, second unit, splintery, I don't have a, there's not a real term for what I was doing on that movie, mm -hmm. uh, except mechanic. And so by the time I directed uh, Rogue Nation, I'd been a fly on the wall and had had a lot of experience and also honed my writing skills in terms of how to write for a studio and what a studio wanted without exposing myself. That progression just the progression from Rogue Nation to this movie is simply a continuation of that. You, you've talked about, about I mean, you've been in the Tom Cruise business for a while, and um, you've spoken eloquently about it, but a lot of people have. It's just that, like, uh, one thing that's underappreciated with him is, is a sense of um, 
how clear he is about emotional clarity and that need for yes. that. Less about like a star persona and more about screenwriters that are working with him get very pointed questions and, and yes. it, it's about that. And you've spoken about that, but I'm curious, you've spoken about that in terms of you know, the story. How does emotional, and I, and I think this comes back to this, the how good this new film is, and, and once again, I do not want, Rogue Nation is great, but how do you, do you get, there seems to be something you've unlocked here about emotional clarity in action sequences. Mm. In, a, in a sense of, there's great action in this, there's great stuff in this, but there's also, I think, one of these things here is, is that your control over the um, tension and also a certain, a certain sense of personality and grounding us in so that uh, where we are in terms of relationship to these characters that there are stakes. Obviously there's always action stakes, but that you can sustain a sequence in that way. And that seems to be something where there is a connection almost, where you, you've, um, you, it, you don't get lost in the spectacle. Even no, though there, even, well, though, even, though, even though there is some. It's, it's, it's emotion first and spectacle second. Uh, but, but I think if you, if you track the, my career from Usual Suspects to Way of the Gun to Jack Reacher to Rogue Nation to this, you can see each movie becoming more and more comfortable with emotion and less and less reliant on narrative, um, I don't want to say clarity because clarity is important, narrative neatness. Um, as a writer, you tend to be very protective of the screenplay and protective of the internal logic of the movie. And my path as a director has become more and more comfortable with, I don't need to know that. Mm. I don't need to explain that. I, 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 don't, I don't need to make that clear. Um, that's not to say I don't put all of that in the movie and then eventually pare it back. And we, we do, on Mission Impossible, overwrite and overshoot. There's, there's so much action in this movie, we had to take some out. And there's so much information, we had to pare it all back. That's only because our biggest concern is that, you know, one, the audience is going to get bored with too much of the talky stuff, and that the, uh, uh, and, and that's why we're always pumping it full of action, but that also the uh, the the talking is not compelling in a dramatic way. It's just it's just there to add clarity. When you're when you have scenes like that, they're they're worse than not having those scenes at all. They go from being I go from being confused to just being bored. And you'd be amazed at how quickly it takes seconds to lose an audience. That, that's knowledge acquired over uh, the, the period of several years of making Tom Cruise movies and testing them very rigorously with a partner like Tom who is completely clear-eyed about that process. If it's, it doesn't matter if it's Tom's idea. If the audience says, we don't like that idea, Tom says, mm -hmm take it out of the movie. He doesn't fight it. He's not, he, and I've been on other movies. I've worked as a script doctor with other directors and with other stars who they'll, they'll wrap themselves in a blanket of, well, I don't care. That's what I want. I want the audience to be confused. Tom's not like that. Tom will never say that. Tom does not want them to be confused. He wants them to be engaged and hooked in from the very beginning. And that's, and that's what we're always chasing after. I learned and, 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 and my problem is I'm a very slow learner and I only learn by doing. I, I, I don't learn as much by observing as I do by doing. We learned so much about emotion on Edge of Tomorrow that we were then able to translate that into Rogue Nation. And in Rogue Nation, we made discoveries 
in terms of how much emotion the narrative could sustain. That when Tom asked me to do this movie, I said, I'll do it, but I want to make a more emotional movie. Mm -hmm. I want to, now I want to lean into that, as opposed to it's, it's part of the movie, I want that to be the movie. That all came from discoveries that I probably should have known day one as a filmmaker and didn't understand how to articulate. The simple fact of the matter is we, we care more about what happens to a character than we do about what they say or what they, or what they do. Um, and, those, and those are things I learned from, not from the movies that I was making, but from the movies I was making with other filmmakers where I was coming in to, f to help fix their mm -hmm. broken or struggling movies because I had a level of objectivity that I don't have on my own on my own work um, and and I would say that's been the real that's been the real benefit to my career that's been the thing that's allowed me to grow as a filmmaker and so here I am in my late 40s I'll be I'll be 50 this year and I feel like I'm just now starting my career I just now have the tools to apply to to filmmaking that another more well-rounded filmmaker probably had three films in you know, you just said before on Rogue Nation, uh, you know, you kind of went in with this goal of um, you wanted to create like the best female character in Mission Impossible. You wanted to also create the, the best villain. You just said that you know here it was about emotion. Is really, I think, it, it, it was. Is this really about kind of digging into a different aspect of the Ethan character? Is that really what this is? Is to see kind of like the um, not only not only a story behind him, but some of the emotion behind him and the guiding behind it. Well, it was when I when I made. Rogue Nation, I took the previous four movies and laid them on top of each other and simply looked for the whole. And, you know, what hadn't these four movies done? What, are, what, what can I do? New what can I do that, that yeah. hasn't been covered? And, you know, the, the bones have been pretty much picked clean by the, end of, by the end of Ghost Protocol. I realized what I didn't have was a strong romantic interest for Tom. Um, that, that, or, or rather... A strong uh, a, a female spy in the movie uh, that wasn't a spy. You know, there was Paula Patton, who I think is very excellent in the fourth movie, but she's a subordinate to Ethan. And that whole movie is built around the fact that Ethan is surrounded by a team of people who aren't ready for the field. So there was room now to create something of a of a uh, of a counterpart to Ethan, and that the tendency is to make a female Ethan Hunt. I, and in doing so, you end up making a woman who's doing a man's job. She, she, it, it, I want to be very clear when I say that so that I don't incur the wrath of the internet. <laughs> it's, it's to say, you, you, it's not a woman, it's a, it's a man, and you've cast a woman in the role. I didn't want that. I wanted a woman. Uh, and... And, and that's really where the character of Ilsa was born. The secret to that character is that she has her own problems to deal with. She's not on Ethan's team. And her problems put Ethan off balance. And she will not compromise on those problems. As opposed to uh, the tendency of writers is to write women action characters as, as these masculine projections. They're, they're kind of a 13-year-old boy's fantasy of what a woman is. That's not what I wanted. And so then going into this movie, I laid all five movies on top of each other, mine included, 
said, what haven't they done? And what none of them had done was really get inside Ethan's head. Um, in fact, I remember Tom, while we were making Rogue, struggling with it. He kept coming to me and saying, I'm not hooked into Ethan's journey. I don't really understand what his story is. And it was Tom's way of articulating to me, I'm just not feeling this. I get it. I understand what my job is. Mm. But I'm not emotionally connected to this character. So when Tom asked me to do this one, I thought, well, I'm not going to have that conversation with Tom again. Mm. I'm never going to hear Tom come to work and say I'm not hooked in. He's going to be hooked in from the minute this movie starts. And, th and that's what I told him. And I said, what do you want to do? And he said, well... Wherever I go, people are still asking me about Julia. They still say, you, you know, you can't be with Ilsa, you're, you're married to Julia. And I thought we had tied that story up in Ghost Protocol. I thought, I, I thought that ending was, was pretty clear. I had since learned, no, it wasn't. Because unless Ethan Hunt explains to you what Ethan Hunt's relationship is, it, it hasn't been explained to you. Uh, and I knew I couldn't do that, but I knew someone else in authority like Luther could. He could really, he could really underline it and, and fill in the blanks of Ethan's past, and which would lay up the, the conclusion of the movie that I had in mind. So I went to Tom and I said, okay, I want to do that. I, I, I would love to do that. But in order to do that, we have to reintroduce her character. We cannot assume that anybody has seen the other Mission Impossible movies. This is a standalone film. I've seen other sequels fall into that. They fall prey to the fact that th they assume you're a fan and they assume you've remembered all the movies or that you watched all those movies that day before you came to the movie. I was like, no. Whatever you remember of Mission Impossible's past, when you're watching this movie, you'll enjoy this movie that much more. But that's gravy. You have to, you have to enjoy this movie on all cylinders having never seen a mission before. So I need to introduce her character. And in order to do that, I have to do it in such a way that this can't be cut out of the movie. Because now I've shot and edited one of these films and I have a pretty good understanding of what survives and what doesn't. So much so that I shot two or three scenes in this movie that while I was shooting them, I knew this will never make it into the finished film. This is only here in the event that there is some glaring question of clarity mm. and that we have to take two minutes to explain to the audience what's going on or there's some question about it mm. but I just knew this is not driving the story forward this is not Mission Impossible um, and then I went about trying to figure out well how do I how do I do that how do I reintroduce that character and how do I do it in the most efficient way possible that's where I came up with the opening scene of the movie and my hope was that the, my personal uh, objective was to not do what I had done in every other movie previous, which is, you know, the first 40 minutes of the movie is just getting everybody settled in. Mm -hmm. My first acts tend to be long, and they tend to be filled with vegetables. You know, it's all the stuff you, you have to do before we get into the mm -hmm. fun of the movie. And, and, of course, I discovered right away there was, with all the ideas we wanted to put in the movie, there was a lot of housekeeping, and the opening of the movie kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the first... Uh, the first real set piece of the movie kept getting pushed farther and farther away into the movie. Which is like the inverse of Rogue. The total inverse of Rogue. And, and I embraced it. I, and I, to I explained it to Tom and Tom embraced it as well. That 
was probably of all the risks we took the biggest one mm -hmm. because there was I squirm as I watch this movie with an audience thinking to myself they're all waiting they're all Get wondering yeah, yeah, yeah where is yeah. it where is it where is it and the movie lulls you into uh, I think the first 10 minutes of this movie mm -hmm. I feel the audience starting to think they blew this <laughs> Oh my God! What are they doing? This is where's this going? And then, mm -hmm. and then it's and then suddenly the light comes on. Uh, that that was that was for us the the, the, the much debated decision, mm -hmm. and 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 one we agonized about. Did you leave yourself a little safety in case? Did you did you have a? Yeah, there's six minutes I could cut out of the movie yeah. in the in the in the in the opening of the film. If you needed to give them, and you you know the scene, yeah. and and uh, unfortunately it's 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 the it's the scene that you know that makes the whole opening of the movie worthwhile. Mm -hmm. I had a way to cut it out, mm -hmm. and the studio came to me when we were testing the film and. And they, of course, come to you with all the information, and they come with all of their solutions mm -hmm. based on that data. Because it's not like the audience is expressly telling you, cut this out of the movie. They're just telling you where it drags for them, where it runs on a little long. The studio's solutions are, if it's, if it's a problem, cut it out. Tom Cruise's solution for those things is, no, don't cut it out. Fix the music, mm -hmm. fix the editing, fix the pace. How do we, you know, how do we tweak this? How do we make it clearer? Mm -hmm. He doesn't care how long a movie is. He only cares how long a movie feels. Right. Um, and so when the studio came and said, you got to make the first act of the movie shorter, I said, all right, well, here, we'll just cut this scene out, the scene in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And of course, they all went, no, 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 you, you, you can't touch that scene. You can't touch that scene. People love that scene. I said, but it can go. Right. And if it can go, it should go. Right. The other information in the beginning of the movie, you must have for, right. the, for the ending to pay off. Yeah. That's the dessert, not the vegetables yeah. um, and of course they that was the end of that discussion yeah now you know obviously you've got your big action set pieces and I it, there's an element of one imagines when you're, you're piecing together a story you're figuring out how to motivate them and this film feels like the inverse which is my and I'm, I'm just guessing here that based on what you wanted to do with the Ethan character there was emotional story beats you had to hit and the action becomes this thing that connects them because it becomes almost this perfect um, conduit between how he got emotionally from here to there. It, it, that's how it feels watching it. Was there a difference in terms of how you thought about it because you went into it with the sense of, I, I want this, uh, you know, in terms of the structure and how you're gonna build this set pieces, did you go into it be different because of the fact that you were thinking about it in terms of how you were gonna do the Ethan emotion? Yeah, well, the last movie, uh, it, it was a huge struggle. The last movie, we came up with the action first, right. then decided, well, what order is the action going to go in? And then what's the story that makes all of these events worthwhile? Why do, why do, why do these events exist in this order? And you feel that in the movie. Um, I, this time, I said I want to focus on, a, on the characters, and I want to let the characters dictate the story. And, uh, and so the, the action sequences were pushed into the background and the, the, the character drum was drawn to the front. What is the dynamic between Ethan and the members of his team, Ethan and Ilsa, Ethan and Lane, uh, Ethan and Henry, 
what's the dyna dynamic between Ethan and Hunley? And what was that relationship going to be? How, how had that relationship evolved since the last movie? I didn't feel that, that Alec Baldwin could come into the movie still being the Alan Hunley, Hunley from the last film. They'd reconciled, and that meant there wasn't the same conflict between them that there was. So what was the engine driving the movie? What's the conflict Ethan has from behind? Because in every one of these movies, there's not just the villain he's out facing, there's the, the resistance that he's getting from his mm -hmm. own side. And I was also determined to lay up elements for future movies that got you out of the rut that the franchise is in, which is Ethan gets a mission, Ethan goes rogue. And that's Angela Bassett's character for whomever wants to continue this franchise is an opportunity for you to have a new, a new kind of resistance from behind. Angela is somebody who now has reconciled with Ethan and has a, uh, and, and there, there, is, there is an implied future between those characters, but that doesn't make her any less a ruthless character. Mm. Uh, the, this is somebody who, the, the, the woman who said, says to Alec Baldwin, that's the job, mm. you know, that when, when the, 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 the team is expendable. My, what I presented to Tom as a potential future for that character was now here is somebody in authority who says to Ethan Hunt, go and do this job. And if you're not out in 24 hours, I'm calling in the airstrike, no hard feelings. Mm. That, that you, you have somebody who no, long, who no longer has to distrust Ethan Hunt. Uh, and, and so you no longer have that rogue mm -hmm. thing. Now you have somebody who just simply says, you know, I'm going to give you 24 hours to get this done, or I'm going to kill you. No hard feelings. Well, I want to talk about a few of the action sequences, the fight sequence in this movie, the, the bathroom fight sequence. There's, mm -hmm. um, by the way, at this point, we're, uh, we're into this. We're, we're going to be talking about individual scenes if people want to dial this off until they see the movie. Um, that fight sequence, I mean, what is, you know, it's funny. Nothing in your background is an element of martial arts, or I don't think, or, yeah. or, or that, or knowing how to do that. Even though you've worked on these films, what is that collaboration like? Because that that action scene is is stunning, but it also has different chapters to it. It's able mm -hmm. to sustain itself, and I have to imagine that becomes a collaboration with the choreographer and also figuring out the story of how to mm -hmm. like. You can get them. It's just in the bathroom, but it's this fight scene that's extraordinary, and it goes. It has different levels to it. Yeah. How do you, how does that work? Is that because I imagine that once again you've become a great action director, but I have to imagine that also comes from a certain level of collaboration. Uh, oh, that's a lot of collaboration. That and that is collaboration at its highest level. You you are coming at it from not only um, uh, cinematography, set design, stunt coordination, rehearsals with the actors, and storytelling. This, this idea, the, the, entire, the, the entire bathroom fight centers around one simple concept. That Tom goes into that bathroom hoping to assume another man's identity. And that, that goes wrong. So when he comes out of the bathroom, he has assumed the man's identity, but looks like himself. Mm -hmm. That was the original story for this movie, was I was going to follow Ethan Hunt as he assumed another man's identity and was forced to play the villain in order to achieve his goal. That was the story driving everything. Like with Rogue Nation, his relationship with Ilsa was the discovery that we made and that expanded to consume the movie and pushed all the other ideas we wanted to explore out to the, to the periphery. 
you have to be willing to do that when you're making these movies. And so there are remnants of that idea, but the whole idea of Ethan becoming the villain of the movie in order to remain the hero, that idea doesn't fully, there's just not the space for it once you get into the movie. What it's really about is his relationship with Henry Cavill. Mm -hmm. And, the, and, 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 there, and therein lies the crux of Mission Impossible, plot versus character, and intellectual concepts versus emotional realities. There's an emotional relationship that he had with Ilsa. There is, a, there is an emotional relationship that he has with Walker, a very different relationship, but it's still based on an emotional conflict as opposed to a plotted one. Mm -hmm. They don't like each other because of their methods. And, the, and everything, uh, everything sort of expands in that sequence from that ignition point. It becomes about the conflict and styles between these two guys, and then the willingness of a star like Tom to allow him, his character, his uh, character of characters, uh, his nest egg of a character, to get his ass beat. In, in a bathroom <laughs> by two, some guy you've never heard two of. Two on one and he's Two done, on one. Yeah. And, and Tom looking at that and saying, here's, here's when I pitched him the scene, Tom then looked at it and said, here's its value mm. and here's what I want to emphasize. This is the equalizer for these two characters. You're, you're showing that, that there is a believable scenario in which Superman can get his ass beat. Uh, so that the audience believes that there's any way that Tom Cruise could match Henry Cavill in a fight. That's a big deal. That's a big deal for an actor to mm -hmm. say. That another actor would just say, find a way for me to kick Henry Cavill's ass. Mm -hmm. Tom's looking at it from the reality of, you know, here's this, I mean, he's a monster, this big guy. So we have to humanize him. But at the same time, we're introducing the styles of these two men. How does Ethan fight this guy? How does Henry fight this guy? And, you, and so throughout that sequence, information is being transmitted to you subconsciously. And it's also physical. He's the hammer. He's this. He's That's this, right. He's, you know, and in that, in that element of also, that'll play off in story, too. It's, there's a physical, it's not just a fighting style. It's also a physicalization of what the, what the character is. That's exactly right. So everything you're seeing in that fight and why that fight, one of the reasons why that fight resonates as well as it does, it's not just fighting, it's storytelling, it's character. You're, you're learning about Henry Cavill and you're learning about Ethan. You're seeing Ethan's vulnerabilities, you're seeing Henry's vulner vulnerabilities, but you're also seeing Henry is capable of rage and is, a, and is a powerful character in his own right. And it also elevates Liang's character to something almost mythic. Mm -hmm. So that when the scene resolves the way that it does, it gives power to that character. Right. Tom is assuming a personality of a guy that's actually worthy of... Uh, uh, well, yes, but also, uh, without giving away the end of the scene, the, 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 the way that scene is resolved mm -hmm. gives, gives power to the character who resolves it. Yeah. Uh, all of that is, is this crucible in which you are, you're, you're building story. And the other element of it is, you have Wade Eastwood and his crew uh, uh, Wolfgang Stegemann is the fight coordinator. Uh, they developed the, the core of that fight. And what they do is they shoot it on video and bring it to you and show you, okay, here's the fight and here's the coverage. And, and, I, go, and I go to them and say, okay, well, let's make this adjustment to that fight, that adjustment to the fight. 
I want to do this kind of this storytelling is getting lost in this beat, and we and we and we develop it from there. Uh, I also work with Peter Wenham, the set designer, and say, well, I don't want a box. Mm. I, if they walk into just a plain old bathroom, there's, you're going to get very tired of this box. So we designed a bathroom that had that middle section mm. and all of those mirrors, and and without it feeling too over-stylized, it, you... So there's layers for them to go and for There's layers, for the, there's a geography for them to mm. move around. So you watch as they come into that space, Everything that I'm doing is establishing the geography of that space so that you don't get lost in it. And that's my fixation is I, 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 whenever there is a new space, the first thing I do is teach you the geography so that you can become grounded in it and you're never playing catch up when the action starts. The the other element with some of these action is uh, you know and you've said this before is is that you know uh, you come to Tom with a pitch and he's the, the, he's very grounded in this idea of um, can they tell it's me yeah you know, can they tell it's me like they need to understand that um, you know it's Tom Cruise hanging from a plane or you know it, 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 it's it's not about can they tell it's Tom Cruise can they tell it's Ethan yeah what because what's important to Tom is subjective storytelling that if I'm shooting the A400 from another, from a helicopter mm -hmm. and looking at a stuntman, it's spectacle. If the camera's on the side of the plane looking at Ethan Hunt as the plane is taking off, it's subjective storytelling. That's Tom's real fixation. Uh, it's, it's always about being hooked in emotionally to that character and his experience. There's an element here I always wondered in terms of you know, with all the professionals that are working on this, they feel so death-defying. Is there an element while you're shooting, and I'm thinking in particular of some of these aerial things, mm -hmm. is there an element here that uh, not only is um, our heart in our throat while we're watching it, there's a little bit of that element of while filming it too? More so, more so. And because you're aware, you're sitting in the theater and enjoying the perceived danger. Mm -hmm. That is the thing that we have made every effort to protect against. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want Tom to get to fall off the side of the A400. You do not want to lose Tom <laughs> we, we do not want to. <laughs> so, so, yes. so we do everything to ensure that that cannot happen. There's mm -hmm. still variables whereby it can. If the mm -hmm. pilot just went a little too fast, there's, there's no safety harness in the world that's going to keep Tom on the plane. He's mm -hmm. going to be torn off. But that's a... That's a, that's a variable that is reduced to its absolute minimum. What I can't control is a bird. And if a bird goes flying past Tom, or rather through Tom, he's dead. It'll take his head off. You're talking about a, the force, a, a yeah. two kilogram animal going, or a kilogram animal, like a seagull going by Tom, even a sparrow, it's a couple of ounces. That'd be like a bullet that, mm -hmm. would, just, that would go right through him and kill him. Uh, if there's a pebble on the runway, and we do everything we can to make sure there's no debris on the runway, but it's just a pebble, and it, and it hits Tom in the head at that speed. He, it's the same thing as, as a bullet. He'd be dead. So we're aware of those things that you're not. You're, you're aware of the... You're, you're, it, it, ideally, you're immersed in the drama of the film, and mm -hmm. you're, you're playing along, and we've painted out the wires, and you're looking at it going, oh, my God, mm -hmm. Tom Cruise is going to fall off the plane. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the last thing we're worried mm -hmm. about. Uh, and what we've also learned on this is that there, there are no small stunts. When Tom broke his ankle jumping from one building to another, 
that wasn't even a stunt compared to the other things we had done to that point. We'd already shot the car chase. We'd already shot. Uh, we'd already shot the helicopter chase. What we were now into. The last thing we had to do was pulpit rock, and that was that was a couple of weeks away. That was the, that was where our focus was. And so when he jumped from one building to another, the only stunt that he was going to perform in the foot chase, he broke his ankle. I just reminded you that. The, the, the really chilling thing about that was, I wasn't worried about Tom being permanently injured in that stunt. The sit-down you have with yourself, the moment where you're freaking out is, my God, the, think of all the ways it could have gone wrong in Paris and all the ways it could have gone wrong in New Zealand. That was, that was the, the really chilling thing. Sounds like being a parent. <laughs> that element where you, Very much where so. you go through that. Well, that's, that, and yeah, that's, yeah. that's the C-17. Yeah, you yeah. Know, when, you, when you're on the C-17, and you've got your crew, and I can't jump out of the plane because they won't let me. I would have. It would have been fun. Uh, and you call action, and you watch them do this stunt, the shot that you've rehearsed a million times, and the shot ends with your entire crew jumping out of the plane. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just standing there. <laughs> and the, 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 the scene has only begun at the point where they jump out. And you turn to the pilot and say, all right, let's go back and see who made it. So. That's parenting. You just, I mean, you, uh, you give them shoes and they walk away. The other thing about this, from some of it is deaf to fine, but there's also an element here with um, two sequences, one the, the, the sky jumping, but then also the, the final, the final the helicopter sequence. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the stunts are stunning, and uh, I imagine a lot of it is, is practical to a certain degree. There's also an element of um, a visceral action in air, of yes. a sense, and... and um, once again, part of it, 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 you know, sometimes he is hanging, and so you, that's, that's natural that you'd feel that way. But sometimes it's the way the helicopter's pointed and the way we're moving through space in the location. Mm -hmm. That seems like something I have to imagine. When I think about how amazing those two sequences are, I have to imagine there's something you learned in terms of how to shoot aerial and how to yes. feel, um, make us feel some, a sense of visceral of hanging off. Of, well, of... of uh, of movement, but also a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. And you would be amazed at the fine line between riveting and boring. Oh, it's no, it's, I wouldn't because Chris, I've seen a lot of action movies, and there's yeah, they, they, they lose it, they yeah, lose it, they do, and they, they get lost in the spectacle of the fact that like I should be amazed by something, and I'm like I, I'm not. There is no awesome shot. Yeah, there is none. They don't yeah. exist, and I think you can think of. You, you can probably point to a few filmmakers who, uh, who get lost in, in the concept of awe mm. and take that for granted. Look at me, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. Or, you know, or we worked really hard for that shot, and yeah. you should like it. Yeah. The audience doesn't yeah. care. Yeah. They're sitting there eating their popcorn. They're thinking about problems that have nothing to do with your movie. And, and they are, first of all, they came. They came to see your movie, and, and, they're, and they're sitting down saying, I want to like your movie. I came to be entertained. You, you, but, but they don't, we take for granted that they care about filmmaking. Mm. They don't, not the, not the average audience. We live in a bubble. You, know, you and I are now in a bubble. You, you, you're, you're talking to me because you love movies and you love movie making. The average person on the street doesn't think of it in those terms, and and so the the so the awe for them 
comes only in your immersing them in that experience. And I had shots in the movie that I loved, that I just absolutely loved. And when and they were painful to take out of the movie. And still the sequence wasn't improving. Still we were not getting the responses from the test audience. Just a moment, are we talking the helicopter? Are we talking the are we talking the, the are you are you talking in general? Uh, helicopter and car chase. And but, car chase. But okay. Paris Chase and the helicopter okay. chase were both, strangely enough, we never had notes about information in this movie. Mm. Any of those dialogue scenes, the scene with him and Ilsa, which is the definition of shoe leather, where she's following him through Paris. That's the first shit you cut out of a Mission Impossible movie. And I was waiting. I was waiting for the studio to come at me. I was waiting for the test cards to show that that's where the movie was dipping. They were into it. They were following that. There was never a note. They kept saying, Chase is too long. Mm. Too much action. And when on earth do you get that note? And I remember we were looking at that, really struggling with it. And of course, a lot of the effects weren't done. And you know, the music wasn't right, the scenes weren't dialed in. But Tom and I had a conversation in the middle of the night one night where we were, we were dancing around and we were kind of, we were kind of disappointed. We thought, we thought the halo sequence was gonna be more than it was. We thought the helicopter chase was gonna be more than it was. And, and I was giving Tom a pep talk and I was saying, you know, you gotta remember that the scene's not finished, the music's not right. The editing's not dialed in yet. It's a, it's a very tricky thing. We've been here before. The opera was a disaster for a long, long time. It was never working and it was a real struggle and we're gonna get there. And he, the call ended with him feeling a lot better and I hung up not believing anything I had told him. And I was just like, I just, <laughs> I feel so bad. This guy's done so much and risked so much and it's not working. It's just not there, but our our belief is you come to work every day and you confront it and you keep fighting with it and you have to be honest with yourself. And I kept testing the movie long after the studio was comfortable with the number and was ready to move on. And I just kept saying, there is a, there, we have, the audience has not articulated for us yet where the problem really lies and we're flying blind. We're taking things for granted and don't take it for granted. Let me test it again. What was the problem with the helicopter? Uh, there, there were moments in both scenes that just, they, they, they were, they were big, and they. There's a shot in the trailer of Tom going head to head with an 18 wheeler in the helicopter. Mm -hmm. That sequence, that part of the sequence was off story, and when I took it out, the notes went away. And we worked really hard at it. It was one we really loved. It's funny. Mm -hmm. It was what we thought was a moment of necessary humor in the story, and it's a awesome shot in the trailer. It was a thing people really were responding to. And for the trailer, it worked. And for the movie, it did not. What mm -hmm. it took to get there. In a trailer, I could just cut to whatever I want. Mm -hmm. when, I'm sh when I'm cutting together a helicopter chase in the middle of a two and a half hour movie, mm -hmm. you can't let them breathe for a second. Yeah. And we took it out and you felt the thing just kick into gear. That's again, that's a testament of working with Tom. Another actor would have clung to that as an idea that he loved and the work that went into it. And the end, you had empirical evidence that the shot was exciting to people. It was, it was a moment in the trailer that they responded to. You look at reaction videos of the trailer and you see people going, oh my God. So you think, of course, that's gotta be in the movie. No, in the context of the movie, it doesn't have to be. You have to have the, you have to have the courage to take it out. Uh, and Eddie Hamilton, the editor, is exceptionally good at that. He's exceptionally good and utterly ruthless. Mm -hmm. And he'll look at something objectively and say, that can go. 
um, and and there were shots in the final movie that he that are in the final movie that he says they should come out and I would say to him you can take it out go ahead and cut it out but how, let me see how you patch the hole and he couldn't artfully patch the hole so they they stayed in the movie and that's that's that was the laugh I had at Eddie because I was like yes you can take it out absolutely but you, you miss it when it's gone he was like yeah yeah I do what about the decision to shoot that um, that final one in IMAX? Is that something that you like playing with? I mean, obviously the film's got it because you're cross cutting between another action, the aspect ratio. I mean, I, I don't know if this is, I mean, I saw it in an IMAX theater down the street, so, yeah. you know, when it goes IMAX, floor to ceiling. Yes. Yeah, and, um, but in that sense of, um, you know, and they're in the mountains, they're in the space, and feeling that space and feeling mm -hmm. that immersion, is that just like, is that in terms of format? I'm, well, you tell me, what was the... Uh, I'll be completely honest with you. I feel like every interview that I do is, I am talking to the filmmaker I was 20 years ago who had to learn by doing and, and learn the slow way. I like to think of everything I do as film school. I'm just jettisoning as, as much as I have learned mm -hmm. to somebody out there <laughs> who's, gonna, who's gonna put it to use which is why I'm as forthcoming as I am. The decision to put IMAX in the film is totally mercenary. It's completely mercenary. It is not an artistic decision. Mm -hmm. it, is a, it is a business decision. When we made Ghost Protocol, or sorry, uh, Rogue Nation, I was being urged by certain entities to put a Chinese actor, yeah. yep. no uh, to put a Chinese actor in the film. Um, and that was because they were doing everything they could to maximize penetration into the Chinese market. Mm -hmm. Of course, they didn't have this conversation with me when, we, when I was writing the movie or when I was prepping the movie, but I would always be shooting the movie and there was only one character left in the movie. When I went to China, I sat down with, uh, uh, with executives in, from China and said, what is it you want? What a, what a Chinese audiences really want? Because I was told to put this character in the movie, and they said, "No, that's you know that's neither here nor there to us. If you put a Chinese actor in the movie, great. What the Chinese audiences want is the absolute premium experience. They want what they can't get at home. They want IMAX, Dolby Vision, 3D, Atmos, every bell and whistle you can put in it." And uh, and so when I came back to America I s and started talking about the next movie, I said, "If we're going to grow the brand." Instead of trying one magic bullet, which is what a lot of film studios do, where they just say, oh, we'll put this in the movie and young people will like it. I said, we're going to try to grow the brand incrementally as best we can. We're going to cast Henry Cavill. We're going to bring more women in. We're going to, and we're going to do this for the international market. And that's the only reason that I did, that I did IMAX. They're okay. okay. Um, I don't want to leave you with an unfinished sentence, so don't worry about it. Um, and so IMAX was in the movie strictly for the international audience. We said, well then if we're going to do that, what are we going to do with it? Now, now, now we've got to think about designing sequence, sequences around it that maximize that so that people, when they're watching it in IMAX, they're, they're getting an experience where that aspect ratio actually has value. The value of that is, if I had shot the Halo sequence in widescreen in 2.4.0, we would have lost most of what we captured. The, the fact that we're shooting in that, that large format 
Craig O'Brien, the cameraman, barely got stuff <laughs> at the top of the frame that would have been otherwise it's cropped out. It was a blessing. There's, well, there's only so far he can arch his body to get the frame. And also in the helicopter sequence, there were things in that sequence that would have been lost uh, as a result. No, so you don't want the wide. I don't think you want the landscape widescreen there either, because that, in that sense of like the relationship between the two. The yeah. sequences are vertical. Yeah. They're not. They're not yeah. horizontal. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sorry that they're rushing you off. You want to ask one more question so we can? This is. I was completely unexpected to you for you to become this incredible action director in this. I mean, I, you've been a great director and you've been a great storyteller, but this is. This is. I. I don't. I know you are done with the franchise, but is this now something you you want to go do? Another. I mean, the chops you showed in this movie are insane, Chris. Oh, is this well, thank a, you. is this is this a skill that something you? I mean, there's vehicles out there for this stuff. Uh, you know, I think of it as an arrow in my quiver. I there's other things I there's other things I definitely want to do. There's there's the there's the stuff I've wanted to do since the beginning of my career and I've never done. My I what I've I've said it before. I've never actually made any of the movies that I set out to make at the beginning of my career. I, I, my career was stalled because I was fighting to make the movies I wanted to make that no one else did. My whole life changed when I started going through the door that opens. Um, no one's ever actually sat down with me and said, what do you want to do? Um, Are you having those conversations now? Or, well, rather, when they do ask me that question and I start to tell them, their eyes glaze over. Um, there and the, and the and the things that I believe are great stories, are uh, are they they terrify them. So uh, there's there's a moment of decision here for me as I as I finish with this movie and potentially with this franchise to think about well where am I going to apply that? I'm finally in a position to go back to the beginning. I'm in a position now where I have where I have a, I have enough saved up that I could that I could go back to being an independent filmmaker and build my career from a smaller movie, build it out. Um, the, the, the question is, what is that story now with everything I know? Yeah. The, you, 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 I, was, I was so much more comfortable developing those potentially toxic ideas when I had nothing to lose. <laughs> Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens next. The good news is I've I've come full circle and I've become comfortable with whatever this is. I I'm not so foolish as to uh, to uh, to look a gift horse in the mouth. Tom Cruise allowed me to take his safest cash cow franchise and in a sense blow it up and experiment with it and. Uh, and and was a, and was a strong enough partner to keep it on the rails so that it was something that that grew as opposed to imploded. Um, you know, we're and and now we're looking at it. And when when the when the it was it's typical Tom when the movie ended at the premiere. It was the first time we watched the finished movie together. Was in Paris. The movie ended and the title splashed across the screen and and you, the, the music was blaring and he leaned over and nudged me and he said, Yeah, we can do better. Well, we look forward to it, Chris. I hope you have um, a break and enjoy this success. And I can't wait to see what you're going to do with uh, the, the cash in your pocket. Not the literal, but the one that you just described. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Right. These are great questions. Thank you. It's good talking to you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.